Support for this show comes from Sylvan Learning. When children love learning, they can tackle any challenge life throws at them. Sylvan's insight assessment can help you determine if your child is ready for what's ahead. It can also identify gaps in learning and point out areas that could be of concern for your child so they can tackle what's to come. And right now, it's the best price of the year at $29. Go to sylvan29.com to learn more and get your child's assessment for only $29. That's S-Y-L-V-A-N-29.com. What makes you, you? And what makes me, me? It's a slippery question, I know. But that's sort of the point. We think we know who we are and what makes us, us. But it's actually not that clear at all. We have an idea of who we are. But that's just a story. And it's a story we're constantly telling ourselves about ourselves. And if that's true, then it means our sense of self is a kind of delusion. At the very least, it means the story of us is not written in stone. We can change it. We can tell ourselves a different story. So why don't we do that more often? I'm Sean Elling, and this is The Gray Area. My guest today is Gregory Burns. He's a neuroscientist at Emory University and the author of a fascinating new book called The Self-Delusion, The New Neuroscience of How We Invent and Reinvent Our Identities. I've had a long-standing interest in identity and selfhood and how these things interact and shape our lives, sometimes for good and sometimes for ill. Burns comes at this from the perspective of a neuroscientist and a psychiatrist. And he makes an interesting case that the thing we call the self really is an illusion, albeit a persistent one. For Burns, the fact that we're always changing is evidence that the unified self is an illusion. He says that at different points in time, we are actually distinct multiple selves in the past, present, and future. When I was trying to wrap my head around this, I remembered this old thought experiment called the ship of Theseus. And it goes like this. Imagine a ship and you replace some planks on it with new ones and then the sail and then the rudder. And over time, you can Im- imagine having replaced every single material part of that ship, but it's still Theseus's ship. We don't think of the intermediary versions as different ships. So how can that be, right? And one answer is that, well, what it is to be Theseus's ship is just the story we tell about it. The unity of that object comes from the story. And I think that's what you're saying. But can't we just think of a single person as being unified in the same way without the need for multiple selves? I mean, what do we gain by recognizing those multiple selves? I mean, obviously you can think about yourself as as a singular entity that has existed through time and is kind of going forward. But to be honest, I've always been troubled by the analogy you just made to the physical body that contains our sense of self. And 
I remember distinctly, even as a teenager, probably early teens when came of age and was kind of having all the angsty issues that teenagers do and staring at a, at a freckle on my arm. And wondering, it's like almost disembodying myself from that. It's like the molecules in there. I knew enough about physics at that point. It's like, well, the molecules are changing. Literally, the carbon atoms and the hydrogen atoms that are in my body are being exchanged with the environment. I didn't know about the Greek analogy at, at that age, but it's the same problem. And so if one's molecules are being exchanged with the environment, then how is it that I can maintain my sense of self and be the same person? And that's not even getting into the fact that the body itself is changing. So the difference between a human being and a ship is that the ship is built from inert material for the most part, and in theory wouldn't change other than through kind of decomposition which is very different than a living body, which is changing constantly at a much greater rate. We know that the body changes and the brain changes. And so the problem is orders of magnitude worse. And so the question is, what is to be gained from this understanding? And my answer would be self-enlightenment, although that's probably a poor choice of words, but an understanding of what constitutes yourself. So what makes me me in that case, and what makes you you? I mean, is it really just the stories you and I tell ourselves about ourselves and the stories we tell other people? Because I guess without those stories, what the hell are we? We're just a walking meat bag, right? Like it's the stories that color it and give it a, a meaning and a, and a significance and an anchor. Yes. And I think that the storytelling is the thing that distinguishes us as human beings from every other animal on this planet. As far as we know, there's no other animal on this planet that tells stories. And that's a big difference. As someone who has studied animal cognition for many, many years, I'm very plugged in and aware of the capabilities that many animals have, and they are impressive, but my dog has yet to wake up one morning and talk to me about her fear of death, or what happened yesterday, or any of the other things that happened in her life. Only humans do that. You say at some point in the book that the stories we tell are the glue that links together what would otherwise be a frighteningly random world. And I think I know what you mean, and I think you're right, but I want to ask, what is it exactly that's so frightening to us about a random world? Why is that scary? I think uncertainty seems intrinsically aversive to not only humans, but most animals. Yeah. And I attribute that to two things. One is that the world that we live in is actually not random. The universe is not random on the whole. And the reason I argue that is, I mean, things don't change very much from day to day. At least in our lives, they don't. And I think what has happened is evolution has given us brains not just us, but all animals, that have evolved to be perfectly matched to our environment that we evolved in. So there is a certain amount of randomness, but it's not completely random. And so what that means is our brains have evolved to predict things on a scale that corresponds to the way our world works. Now, that is, of course, just on average. So there are going to be times and days and years when uncertainty is high. 
I think we exist now in a period of high uncertainty. We've existed in a state of uncertainty, honestly, for the past several years. And I think we all feel that. It's when our predictions fail us for a variety of reasons. And it is, frankly, terrifying. And it is uniquely terrifying to humans because we are aware of our own mortality. We are aware of the past self. We're aware of the future self. And to the point, we're aware the future self is finite, that it's going to come to an end. Do you think that the idea of the self or selfhood is just an unavoidable illusion? You know, even though it's a story, are we almost forced to think of it as something more real, something more concrete? I think that's probably a defense mechanism. And this is kind of one of these things. And it's like thinking about thinking almost. I think there are limits and probably evolutionary protections in our brains that prevent us from going too deeply in this direction. You know, I don't know about you, but every time I kind of try to think about me thinking, I can kind of get into it just a little bit. If I'm really concentrating or kind of try to go with the flow, then I just kind of get this anxiety welling up in my chest. And it's like, crap, I can't do this. I don't want to do this. Yeah. Do you meditate? No, I can't meditate. I mean, look at me. <laughs> I mean, <laughs> do you? I mean, I, I ask because, you know, like one way to cut through the stories, our minds are constantly spinning is to really truly be present and just and notice that the sense that there's something beyond immediate experience really is illusory. And I say that as someone who's been meditating off and on for a few years now, but I still, for the most part, can't really do it. I mean, what I call meditating is really me just sitting down thinking about meditating. And, you know, the mind, it just won't stop pulling you away from the moment and back into your head with chatter and thoughts about God knows what, right? And that's really just that storytelling part of the brain refusing to shut up. It just goes and goes and goes. It's really hard to just simply exist. Right. I'm aware that a big goal of meditation is to try to tune out all that noise, which includes thinking about the past, rumination, and worrying about the future, and try to live in the present. And a lot of that is done by concentrating on things like breathing, because that's a kind of a good centering exercise. But like I said, I'm not a fan. I don't do it. I'm not good at it. And I'm also not totally convinced on the benefit of it. I feel like we're sort of dancing around, I guess, what people call the hard problem of consciousness. You know, to be conscious, or at least to be self-conscious, is to feel like you're someone experiencing something, and that creates the illusion of this thing we call the self, because it's like something to be you, or it's like something to be me, and therefore we can't help but think that consciousness has to be more than just information processing or whatever. And maybe it is, I don't know. I just, I think I know when the body dies, the lights go out, but <laughs> it's all kind of a mystery. It is related to the hard problem of consciousness, that is. Although, I argue that we don't have to solve the hard problem in order to understand ourselves better. Yeah, And that's a key distinction, because if you accept the fact that the self is a story that you tell, you don't have to understand how that process happens. Just tell a better story. You see some of this a lot when people talk about, you know, like the mind-body distinction. And part of me just thinks it's impossible to not imagine that there's a doer behind the deed or an experiencer doing the experiencing. It's like it's coded into our language. You know, we don't say, I am a body. We say, 
I have a body. And it seems like a subtle thing, but it's it's actually not. But I think it seems like it's almost impossible to get around that. So we're just stuck with it. Yeah. And I think it goes even further than that, particularly when we're talking about how we feel. Mm. We typically say, at least in English, I am mad or I am hungry or I am in love. Yeah. And that construction, we take those emotions and those feelings and they become us. We identify with them. We identify with them. And by virtue of saying, I am this emotion, not only do I identify with them, we incorporate them entirely. And our body and everything contained within becomes that emotion, which I don't think is true. I think that's kind of a top layer that we put on it. And that's a language construction. But it's very easy to kind of fall into that trap and think, yes, I am angry or whatever. And yet there is something true about that though, right? There, <laughs> the emotion, you may be confused about you know, whether or not you're a subject or whether or not there's something beyond this bundle of perceptions and whatnot, but like the emotion, the experience of feeling something, that is real, even if the stories we impose over it are constructed. It refers to something that is very real, and that matters. It does. I write a lot about this, and the feelings and the sensations that we experience are real in the sense that they're not fictions, they're not figments of our imagination. However, they are like any other perceptions, and that is they have their roots and their origin in some kind of physical phenomena, whether it's you're looking out at the world and you're looking at a flower, it has its origins in the photons coming off of the flower, or whether you feel something in your belly, whether it's because you ate something bad or because you're nervous, those are physical sensations, but it's still the brain that has to interpret that and not only interpret it, interpret what it means to you at that moment. We're going to take a quick break, but when we're back, if we invent ourselves through our stories, could psychedelics help us change them. Support for this podcast comes from Constant Contact. If you're a business owner, you already know that it's really, really hard to cut through the noise of everyday life. If you want to connect with your customers, you need to break through the noise. You need Constant Contact. Constant Contact is a marketing platform that makes it easy to reach new audiences, grow your customer list, and connect over email, text, social media, and more. Whether you're a marketing guru or just learning the ropes, Constant Contact offers writing assistance tools and automation features that make it simple to say the right thing at the right time. So get going and start growing your business today with a free trial at ConstantContact.com. Just go to ConstantContact.com right now. Constant Contact, helping the small stand tall. ConstantContact.com. This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Forget the frustration of picking commerce platforms when you switch your business to Shopify. The global commerce platform that supercharges your selling 
wherever you sell. With Shopify, you'll harness the same intuitive features, trusted apps, and powerful analytics used by the world's leading brands. Sign up today for your $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash tech, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash tech. So part of the the argument you want to make in the book is that simply knowing that we invent ourselves through our stories allows us to change those stories and reinvent ourselves, which is certainly possible, but difficult. Do you think much about psychedelics as a therapeutic tool in this regard, as a natural technology that allows us to shatter some of these illusions or, or see through some of these stories and change them? and at the same time change our brains. I do think, actually, that psychedelics have great potential because the thing that psychedelics do is they affect perceptual systems. They don't cause hallucinations. They don't cause delusions. They change perception. And everything about ourselves, everything that I've written in this book is about self-perception. It's how we take these impulses from our body We interpret them through the filter of our own memories and experiences and then come to some conclusion. One way to change that is kind of top-down, where you literally kind of have to do the hard work of rewriting the story you tell yourself. But the other way, which psychedelics are very good at, is changing it from the bottom up. It can change kind of the inputs and the perceptions of not only what's coming into your eyes and your ears, but your perception of yourself, which also depends on those same senses. So yes, I do think they have great potential. I did a lot of reporting on psychedelics and the researchers studying how they interact with our brain. They constantly refer to an area of the brain called the default mode network. And that's the part of the brain that's responsible for memories and emotions, and it helps us create this consistent story of ourselves across time. And there's a good bit of research showing that that part of the brain shuts down on psychedelics. And it allows, I guess, different parts of the brain to communicate that normally don't communicate. And I guess the thinking is that that might allow for kind of breaking out of some of these mental loops and the patterns of behavior that they produce and kind of shaking it up and giving people a chance to reinvent themselves in that way, or at least tell themselves a different story about who they are and and what they are. I imagine that for someone like you, there's a lot of potential there. Yeah, I think that tracks with my thinking about that. Perception and the default mode network is kind of doing something along the lines of perception. Perception kind of comes back, I mean, vision is the easiest one to think about. Again, vision begins with photons bouncing off of objects, and they come in and they hit our retina, and then it goes back into our visual cortex, and then the rest of the brain has to make sense out of that. It's not a one-to-one process. By that, I mean the brain has to figure out what's called the inverse problem. It has to figure out where did those photons come from and what does it mean? And there's not a single answer to that. You can look at something, you can look at, uh, you know, I'm looking at a coffee mug on my desk and I perceive it as a certain size and shape, but it could be, for example, it could be a much larger mug farther away from me, just taking size as an example. And my brain uses past experience with coffee mugs and everything I know about coffee mugs to know 
no, that's not true. It's based on past experience. You know it's sitting right next to your hand. But that's past experience. And again, you cannot separate your memories even from your instantaneous perceptions. So if you talk about psychedelics kind of shaking up the snow globe, well, that's what it's doing. It's kind of disconnecting or uncoupling your instantaneous perceptions from your past expectations of what you think you're perceiving. I want to talk to you about identity. And that's a word I thought a lot about, but mostly in the context of politics and, and how all the ways we define ourselves have become, well, they've always been important, but they've become even more important. Or they've become activated in very complicated ways. But you're thinking about it from the perspective of a neuroscientist and a psychiatrist, which is very different and way beyond my understanding. So could you explain how you define identity or at least how you think about it? Well, I think identity is in many ways just another word for the self. You know, we often hyphenate the words self-identity. When we talk about identity, I think we're probably talking in a shorthand most often. In the context of politics, you self-identify as a Republican or a Democrat. In terms of gender, there are labels to go along with that. But those are just the labels. Those do not fully capture I think what we're talking about in terms of the true self. It comes back to the question, which is, who are you? Because the question is so difficult to answer, and in fact, we probably don't even have the words to fully describe who we are, we have to fall back on language that we have. And depending on the circumstance, you may fall back on telling a tale, a story about yourself, whether it's to someone else or to yourself, or Frankly, you could be lazy about it and just say, okay, well, I'm a neuroscientist or I'm a Democrat. And so I think oftentimes when we talk about identity, people are often using these very kind of terse shorthand labels, which doesn't even come close to your true identity or your true self. I find it very interesting how we pick and choose the things that make up our identity or how often we don't consciously pick and choose those things. They're just a product of where we're born or of our social context. But so much turns on these decisions, right? And deep down, it does feel kind of arbitrary in a way, but that doesn't make it any less significant. Look at it this way. Everything in your head has come from one of two sources. Either it's something you experienced yourself, so you have direct experience, or it's something you heard from someone else whether it's written, spoken, on the screen, however it's input. If it's in your head, it's part of you. And so that is part of your identity. And what's interesting and somewhat arbitrary, which you're alluding to, is that we're very bad at keeping track of the provenance of our memories and our experiences. With time and kind of retelling, it's very easy to jumble up one's own experiences with things that someone has told you or you've heard somewhere or you saw somewhere. And it all just kind of ends up as like a stew. And that really is who you are. And the story you tell about that stew is your self-identity. So yes, it's arbitrary. Many things that happen to each of us are arbitrary and out of our control. But there are other things that are in our control, and that includes these extraneous sources of information. So 
who you talk to, who you listen to, who you watch, that all gets in your head. And so you definitely have control over that. And so you have the ability to kind of control the narrative about yourself via these other sources. Do we really though? There's so much pressure. You know, it's like <laughs> in my case, right? I'm, I'm a Southerner, a former teacher, a veteran, a college football fan, a white dude. I and mean, I guess these are all part of my story. They're all part of my identity, but like, why should any one of them be more important than the other? I mean, it's sort of just a story I choose to believe or the story that people around me choose to believe. And then I get persuaded or compelled by that. See, I don't buy the thing you just told me at all. Oh yeah. Tell me why it's bullshit then. Because those labels you just rattled off, that's like you went to the supermarket and you just went down the aisle of white men and just picked them off. And it's like, okay, take a little bit of this, a little bit of that, mix it up. And there you go. That's who I am. I mean, no, come on. That's not it. No, I'm just saying these are categories in the world that I confront, right? And like, you know, I don't wake up every morning like thinking hard about these things, but they come to define me in, in ways maybe I don't even recognize. And when I'm presenting myself to the world, I, it's part of the way I would describe myself. But I mean, the things I choose to identify with mostly are the things that I choose to define myself by. Like the, Those are kind of arbitrary, and I guess it really is my choice. It's just we're part of this social environment, and there's a lot of factors around us that contribute to what we choose to emphasize and what we choose to ignore or what gets activated and when. You know, I'm still not totally persuaded by that. And I totally agree that the things around us get into our heads. That is completely unavoidable. And in fact, the notion that we're completely unique is also part of the delusion because the fact is that we're consuming a lot of the same narratives because we live in a culture and the culture kind of defines the narratives that it just kind of impose on us. But it's not a totally passive process. Each of us is more than those extraneous narratives. It's also our experiences and also the ones that we choose to emphasize and the ones that we own and call ourselves. It's also, and you point out in the book how, you know, that experience of looking at an old picture of yourself, and it feels like you're looking at a completely different person. And as you were just saying, like even on a cellular level, we are physically not the person that we were then. And it really kind of is just a story of us that's holding it all together, even though that story is, is constantly changing. Well, that's right. So the story is changing and the physical substrate is changing. So it's like you have these memories from your childhood, which is like recording something on VHS and then playing it in 4K. You can't create more information than, than was there in the first place. So what we're very good at and our brains are very good at is filling in the holes, what I call the lacunae. Neurologists call it confabulation. So where there's a hole in your memory, just like a blind spot, the brain will fill it in with something. And so what's it going to fill it in with? Well, it's going to fall back on narrative tropes that you've heard throughout your life. So if you like to consume hero myths and stories like Star Wars and kind of most popular movies, well, it's going to fill in a narrative that might cast you as the hero on your life journey. Or maybe if you kind of tend towards anti-heroes or tragic figures, it might fill in a tragic narrative of who you are and to fill in those holes. I believe it all comes back to you are what you eat. 
And when you say that the brain fills in our blind spots with memories, some of which are, <laughs> are reliable and some of which aren't, do you mean that we subconsciously alter our memories in ways that reinforce the story of ourselves? Is it kind of motivated in that way? It can go either way, I think. So if something happens to you and you have to kind of interpret it and incorporate it into your self-narrative, we sometimes have the experience that it doesn't fit. You might do something that you maybe feel ashamed of or it just doesn't kind of jibe with who you think you are. So you have two choices at that point. You can either alter your narrative and kind of who you think you are. You might have to revise that. Well, that's a lot of work and people don't like to change their narratives. So the alternative is, well, just change how you remember things and make that memory fit the ongoing narrative. And what does that mean exactly? How do you do that? Because you talk about the importance of avoiding false narratives. I guess by that you just mean stories that we tell ourselves that whether they're true or not are harmful or pathological. So what do you mean by that and how do we do it? Oh, I think we do it all the time. I mean, it goes by different names, uh, confirmation bias, for example. We like to remember things when we were correct and we're very good at forgetting when we're wrong, right? So that's kind of a selective remembering or a selective, um, I mean, it's an alteration of the truth in the sense that we're not very good at remembering when we're wrong. So that's kind of a very superficial way of doing it where we alter the memories or even our perceptions in the moment to conform to this version of ourselves. like, oh, well, I'm always right. My perceptions are right. Yours are wrong. It seems very possible to get caught up in a narrative about ourselves that may be true, like me telling myself all the time that I'm too anxious. And I absolutely am. But believing that, telling myself that probably makes me more anxious, you know, where I'm just getting anxious about being anxious. I guess what I'm saying is there's something true and pathological about a narrative like that. And it would probably be better for my own well-being to just tell myself that I'm not anxious. And maybe that story, while false, will help me become less anxious, which would somehow then make it more true. I don't know. What do you think about that as a neuroscientist and a psychiatrist? I think you're absolutely right. I think you hit the nail on the head, especially when it comes to anxiety. When you say you're anxious, you're an anxious person, you suffer from anxiety, or you're a depressive person, or you suffer from depression, that's heavy baggage that brings along with it existing narratives, right? So there are plenty of narratives about anxiety and depression, for example. And so if you say, I'm that, or that's part of me, then it is necessarily going to affect your story and it's going to affect your perception even in the present. So if you have a fluttering in your chest, is that anxiety? Well, if you say you're an anxious person, then you will come to the conclusion that, yeah, you're anxious and maybe on the verge of a panic attack. If you're not an anxious person, you might blow it off and say, nah, you know, I ate something or something doesn't feel right, but who cares? You see, this is the mind-body stuff that it just breaks down for me, and I just don't know what to think of it. It's like, I get the sense that you may be more like on the materialist side, where you just think of the brain as the only thing that's really real. And, and I guess that's the case in, in lots of ways. But then I think about how our beliefs can change our brain. If a police officer called me now, interrupted this podcast, and I answered, and he said, 
your wife was just in a bad car accident on the way home from work and she's been taken to the hospital or something even worse than that. Just simply hearing those words would change my whole neurology. It would change my physiology in ways that, you know, it's just, how do you make sense of that, that connection between mind and body and beliefs and our actual like material body? I am a materialist and a reductionist, but I would say probably less so than in years past and past books that I've written, because I think what we're talking about is essentially the difference between the hardware and the software. Yeah. Right. So I would argue that the software, it's still material in the sense that it's real and it exists somehow. We just don't understand how it exists, but it's there. But software is buggy and it can be rewritten. I mean, do you think of the brain as like a personal computer, this thing that stores data and we can call on it for, you know, memories and information and that kind of thing? Yeah, I guess so. Although the technology, I think, has changed that analogy a bit in the sense that we're less reliant on the contents of our own heads. When I was a kid, there were no computers or no cell phones. There's no internet. You wrote stuff down. And so the contents in your head, it felt like you kind of had to carry around a lot more stuff in your head, if that makes any sense. Mm -hmm. Now I don't have to carry stuff in my head. I don't have to carry useless facts in my head. If I choose, I don't have to really understand basic math because I can punch it into my phone. So in that sense, it's not contained all in our head anymore. It's much more distributed. It's plugged into the interwebs and everyone else and wisdom of the crowd, if you will. Coming up after one last break. If the human brain is just a computer, who's the user? thinking of hardware and software as a way to understand the body and the mind. And that's something that people do quite often. And, you know, with computers, obviously there's a user for whom that software is designed, but who's the user of the brain? What's behind the brain? I mean, is that just the wrong question or is that where this kind of breaks down into the hard problem and it's just kind of beyond the purview of materialist science? Yeah, that is a hard question on who the user is because there may not be a user. You know, it might be the Wizard of Oz and it's all just kind of a curtain. Or maybe we're, we're on an alien supercomputer simulation, but you know, we want to <laughs> say the self. It's the only word we have to describe that. But if that's a delusion, then I don't know how to think of it. See, now you're kind of making me feel icky. You know, it's this, <laughs> it's the feeling I get when I start thinking about thinking. Yeah. Yeah. You're probably feeling the same thing. It's like you're trying to get your hands around it and it, it just, it's really uncomfortable, and then you just give up, which tells me that, okay, either, yes, it's now we're, we're bumping up against the hard problem, and that's not one that I think we're ready to tackle, or it's just not a terribly useful question at the moment. By that, I mean, if we kind of sidestep that bit 
and look at the other manifestations of the self. It's like, okay, you've got your memories, you've got your instantaneous perceptions, you've got projections into the future, and then you've got the stories that you tell about yourself. And then, of course, all the other extraneous sources of information. Each of those things is kind of a, a module, if you will, of the self. And I think we can make progress in understanding each of those modules without kind of understanding necessarily how it's put together or how it gives the illusion of the self. Because if you accept me completely that it's totally an illusion, well, that's a pretty bleak conclusion and you, you might choose to end the simulation, which is not something I'm advocating. Yeah, me either. I mean, I, I think some of the stuff is real and illusory at the same time. And I don't think we're ever going to really solve the hard problem. And maybe we don't have to. It may be enough to just know how arbitrary some of these things are and to know as best we can how the mind works and the effect it has on us and the pathologies thinking in the wrong ways can create and just course correct as best we can. But in terms of getting to the bottom of the mystery of consciousness, I... Good luck with that. And just kind of to hammer the point home, I don't think that we're going to solve the hard problem. And the reason I say that is because, okay, if you take it literally that our brains are some kind of computer, and then you ask the question, well, can that computer think about itself? Can that computer understand itself? Well, there's a very important computational limitation that you would be dealing with. And if that computer was to think about itself, that is saying it needs to simulate itself in some way. Now, in order to make a completely realistic simulation, you would need a computer with at least as much memory and capacity as the original computer, plus more, because you would need to hold the thing itself plus the simulation. And there's technical terms for that limitation in computer science. And what it says is no computer can do that. And the only way that it can run a simulation of itself is by throwing out information or doing compression and making it kind of a lo-fi version of itself. So the simulation that we're running in our heads is a cartoon version of ourselves. And there may be different cartoons, but they're lo-fi. Well, we may not solve the hard problem, but what's the next frontier, you think, in our understanding of the brain and the role that plays in our self-understanding? I think progress can be made in understanding how we choose to continue the analogy, which of those lo-fi simulations you want to adopt at a particular moment in time. So you may have kind of different lo-fi characters of yourself in your head, and you choose to trot them out in different circumstances. So I think, you know, we're really close to understanding how that happens. And then once we do that, then we can take control of that process, whether it's through psychedelics or whether it's through kind of a targeted introspection or conversations like this. I don't know, but I think we're close. Yeah, that's the thing. I mean, these stories are made up and they can be revised, but because we're embedded in this social world and we have relationships and connections with people who see us as we were, and that it makes it harder to shake these stories up. You know, in my own life, as I try to change and grow like everyone else, I keep getting reminded of the person I was, of the things I'm trying to leave behind. And the story of me keeps being reinforced in my interactions with the people who have known me. And that feeling of being chained to that previous iteration of myself produces a lot of unhappiness and frustration. And I'm sure I'm not alone in that. So in that sense, 
these stories are made up, but it is really difficult sometimes to get out of them or to change them and to have the people around you accept that and see you differently, if that makes sense. Yeah, it does. I sympathize and I empathize with that because we all have baggage, no doubt. And to carry out what I'm suggesting, you would have to say for those particular versions, past versions of yourself that we might not be proud of, it's like, that's not me. That's not who I am now. That was a different person. Some people may accept it. Some might not. But it, it does start with just saying it and believing it. That's, mm-hmm. yep. <laughs> you got to start with the step, right? I mean, yeah, if you can't say it, then don't expect anyone else to accept it. All right. The book is called The Self-Delusion, The New Neuroscience of How We Invent and Reinvent Our Identities. I love the book, and I really appreciated this conversation. Gregory Burns, thanks for coming in today, man. Hey, deep conversation. It was fun. Eric Janikas is our producer. Amy Drozduska is our editor. Patrick Boyd engineered this episode. Alex Overington wrote our theme music. And A.M. Hall is the boss. I was going to tell you how much I love this kind of conversation, but you already know that because you listen to the show. If you're into topics like this, you should check out our old episode from January, I think, with the philosopher David Chalmers. He's the guy who coined the term, the hard problem of consciousness. Anyway, let us know what you think. Drop us a line at the gray area at vox.com. And as always, if you appreciated this episode, please share it with your friends, leave a review, email it to your old college roommates, whatever. We really appreciate it. New episodes drop on Mondays and Thursdays. Listen and subscribe. Subscribe.